Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This is the episode I promised yesterday, um, which is to say a question and answer solo episode, answering questions that have come to me through the Patreon and through email and on Twitter in response to my call out of yesterday for such. So I will try and give you some answers to your questions and of course, because I put out a podcast yesterday, I probably don't need to plug the usual round of things, but because I also made a New Year's resolution that I would be better about plugging things, I will begin by doing that. First of all, I have a Patreon. You can support my work there if you like my work. Even if you like my work, you don't have to support it there, but it's a way you can support my work. You can also just tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, or email me at alicerfraser at gmail.com. I do try to reply to every email um, in due course, but uh, sometimes one slips through the cracks. So if I don't reply to you, it's either because you've said something horrifying or just that I have put it aside because it's a thoughtful, considered email. I've picked it up while I'm on the bus and I've thought, well, I need to sit down properly to reply to this, and then I just haven't. So alicerfraser at gmail.com or on the Patreon Messenger or on Twitter, other places that are probably best to reach me. Uh, what else am I plugging? Oh, yes, things on my website. There are some things for sale. There will be more things for sale. My friend Sarah in Adelaide makes these things uh, by hand. She's incredible, and she's been so wonderful to have around this year to help do that for me. I'm not great at admin, so having her you know, pick up the burden of creating merch like by, with her hands... Um, is an incredible, an incredible thing, really. So props to her. What else am I plugging? Oh, yes, um, I'm doing the Soho show with Andy now from the 2nd to the 5th of January. Those are the remaining dates. His show, it's his show, Certifiable History, Andy Zaltzman, The Certifiable History. It's at 9.30 at the Soho Theatre, and I am playing the sidekick. It's a very silly part, and I'm enjoying it immensely. If you uh, want to know my dates for... Uh, the Australian festivals, uh, that's um, Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. I will be there. Um, those dates are now up on my website and you can, I think, buy tickets for all of them now. The links are up on my website, which is alicefraser.com. And um, what else? Uh, trilogy, of course, is available. The Alice Fraser Trilogy is available. Trollplay is still available. Those are podcasts, so those are free. The Resistance is available as a download, as a USB or on Amazon Prime, as a filmed thing and um, my Audible documentary series are also available on Audible if you listen to Audible they're there for free I will find out if there's a way for people who don't subscribe to Audible to get them but I'm not sure that that's possible so I feel like I've plugged everything that's good onwards to the questions question number one Ants Pants asks I'm not sure if you, I don't think that's your real name um I'm not sure if you've covered it in recent solo episodes, but I mentioned on Twitter a while ago, why is the onus on lonely people to get out there and not be lonely? That is a really interesting question. I think it's... I mean, it's not fair. Obviously, if you feel lonely, um, sometimes the last thing you want to do is kind of go out and make yourself even more vulnerable to people. The potential of rejection is really high. But it's a sort of, essentially one of those things where life isn't fair. It's the same reason as the onus is on people who want to get a job to go and get a job. The world doesn't owe you anything, even though it isn't fair. And there's plenty of people who are happy on their own, so it's sort of a, a big ask for somebody who doesn't know you or who isn't close with you 
or even someone who is close with you to think of you, to contemplate the fact that you might be lonely, to assess from usually a lack of information that you are lonely and then to pursue that when you might just be having a kind of a quiet time on your own and enjoying yourself or you might be with other friends or you, you know what I mean? It's, a, it's an ask of other people to be that interested in your life. Um, and also the difference between being lonely and alone is a subtle one. You can feel really lonely when you're among people and equally you can feel very satisfied with your own company. So I think that's why the onus is uh, on people who are lonely to get out there and not be lonely because only you know how lonely you feel. And I think perhaps one of the things that you're alluding to, possibly, I could be extending here on your situation, is that sometimes when you're lonely you are also a bit depressed. And so the feeling of being lonely and depressed is a kind of a crippling sense that you can't go out and get the things that you need to make you happy. The, the depression makes you feel uh, like there's a barrier between you and what you want and that it's really hard and you can feel a little, little bit resentful that other people can't see that in you and they won't help you. Um, I don't have a solution really and I, I don't know if that answer is a, a good answer. There are obviously the things that people say to do if you're feeling lonely or if you have a, a bit of depression or if you're very depressed, there are many resources that are available, but the, the, there's nothing really that can fix that sense of resentment that you might feel towards having to go and access those things. So um, I hope that's a decent answer. Let me know if you would like more of my thoughts or if, you, if I've completely misinterpreted your question, I'm happy to have another swing at it in the next question and answer section. Um, Jonathan says, I got into a conversation at my curling club last week. Why do some veterans feel the need to treat rookies like trash? I would think the goal is to help and mentor instead of knock down. I guess this also can apply to real life situations like the job field. Um, I think I think that's a true thing. I think many, uh, look, I've been in an industry where there are rookies and veterans. There are many veterans who go out of their way to help rookies, but there is something... I think people understand their own value usually in comparison to other people. It's one of the reasons why people don't think of themselves as wealthy nowadays because they're, if they're not comparatively wealthy. So even people who are really working class now still have much better lives than middle-class people would have a hundred years ago in some very significant aspects, access to fresh food, access to entertainment, um, the clothes, the quality of the clothes, heating, housing, transport, all of those things, uh, health care, are much better than they used to be, but we compare ourselves to the people around us, and so people understand themselves within a hierarchy. It's almost impossible to get away from that. We are influenced by our friends, by the people we surround ourselves with, and by the people that we see. So I think some people don't understand themselves unless they are above some people and below other people, and they assess their value by that metric. So that means that in order to establish that metric, if they see a veteran, uh, or if they see a rookie rather, and they are a veteran, they want to remind the rookie that they're a rookie. Also, there is that feeling sometimes 
I don't know how competitive curling is, that the young people are coming up to get you, that you can't last at the top for very long and so you want to, you know, step on their fingers as they climb the ladder behind you. I know certainly that exists in comedy, that vibe, this feeling that particularly in, in sports or areas that privilege youth and newness, the only thing you have is your experience and that that, that is the only thing that's keeping your grip on any kind of relevance or power. So you want to make sure that people understand that you are at the top of your game in this way and that they shouldn't try and come and get your thing. It's, you know, old wolf, young wolf vibes. Um, so just people so they don't feel like they're floating in a status vacuum. There's a really interesting conversation online. I don't know if you are a fan of uh, Joe Rogan. I'm... I feel have, I have mixed feelings about Joe Rogan's work, but I think he does some very interesting things. He has a fascinating conversation with Neil Brennan about Louis C.K. that I think explores some of the dynamics as they pertain to the comedy industry. I think that's worth uh, watching on YouTube or listening to um, if you have a chance when it comes to like status games. And uh, obviously that goes into gender as well because of the Louis C.K. thing. Uh, David asks... Um, I read once that the left and the right of the political spectrum has its origins in empathy, the left, and loyalty, the right. It seems to hold true, and I think you've touched on this before. I have indeed. If you can find a sociologist to have tea with, that might be an interesting conversation to expand upon. I would like to do that, David. I am interested in that very much, interested in why people think and feel the way they feel, because a lot of our thoughts, I think, are us dragging um, flagpoles into line after a wagon that is our feelings. We feel a certain way and then we justify why we feel that way. Uh, so I would be interested in unpacking that a little bit more, what the relative virtues of each side are and what, where it's coming from. I don't, I don't think it's right um, for the left to consistently characterise everyone on the right as being motivated by fear um, and and hatred, nor do I think it's right for everyone on the right to categorise those on the left as being motivated by uh, fear of disapproval or a sort of a desperate um, tribalism seeking of approval. I, th I think those are both wrong categorisations and I'd like to kind of unpack them a little bit more and see if we can figure out what we agree on and what what exactly we disagree on on a fundamental rather than on a policy level. Uh, next question. Sam says, uh, oh, she's recovering from a surgery um, that is, is now relapsing, basically. And did I ever find that with my mum's illness that some changes and crises were easier or harder to maintain emotionally for me and for her? Any thoughts on why that might be? And if humans have finite resilience? Um, Sam, I think that is uh, a very good question. Of course, of course. I mean, there was a big thing for my mum when she had had um, MS for longer in her life than she had not had it. She was diagnosed... Uh, in her mid-twenties, and so as she came up to the point where there was as much as much of her life lived with a really debilitating disease as there had been before, I think that was a real identity shift for her. 
um, you think of yourself as somebody who has a disease, but if it's a disease that affects your mind after a certain amount of time, you know, it's difficult to determine what is the disease, how much of your personality is shaped by it and your experience of the world and that it's never going to go away suddenly strikes you. Um, of course, of course there are things that you cope with better and worse. It's an amazing thing, resilience. Um, I remember after my mum died realising how far in debt I was, resilience-wise, that I had overdrawn an account, emotionally speaking. Um, but while it was going on, the process of her kind of final illness, uh, it, I would have kept going for as long as it took. There wasn't, it, it didn't feel like a finite resource. And so in some ways it feels like it can't have been. But when it was over, when mum had died, there was a vacuum for a significant period that w wasn't grief, but was, I mean, there was the grief, but aside from the grief, there was also this sense of having overdrawn this account. So I think the two questions you've asked, why are some changes and crises easier and harder to manage emotionally? It's hard when you think you've fixed something to have it come back and to have it come back in a way that makes you wonder if it will ever be gone. It's, it's really hard to think that you've sorted something and, and, you know, that it's been a great effort to sort it or that you've managed to deal with it really well and then have it come back. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. If you've done all the right things, why is this still happening to you? So, of course, it, depending on where you are in your life, depending on how much you've worked to fix something, when it comes back, it can be horrendous. I mean, being human, having a body isn't for the faint-hearted. We, if we're lucky, we have, you know, some illness, and if we're unlucky, we have a lot. Um, and then the second question being whether humans have finite resilience. I think, of course, we do. You know, everyone has a breaking point. Um, but you are stronger than you think you are. And as my mum said, you just have to get on with it if you can. And if you can't, you get on with what you can. Uh, so thank you for that question, Sam. Best of luck with kicking it, this disease, and if not, coping with it. Dan asks if you could choose one lucky break, meaning your hard work pays off and gets noticed or appreciated career-wise, what would it be? Um, I, would like, um, I would like to keep doing what I'm doing, but more so, so that doesn't really count as a break. I would like, probably television would be something that I haven't done a lot of that I'd like to do more of, but I think I'm quite picky about what I would like to do. So, um, that might not happen in part because I'm not willing to do it at all costs. Uh, what would be some of the career successes or wishes I have for some of my fellow comedians I work with? I would love Laura Davis to have a series up and it looks like that might be happening. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, I, other than that, I want people to have what they want, really. <laughs> I, I, d I don't know what to wish for other people. Um, I wish for other people to be happy and to make money doing the job that they love and for everyone have a, a wonderful Edinburgh.
Speaking of which, Taru asks, will I be at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019? Yes, I will be there. I will have my new show. It will be called Ethos. I am yet to write it, but I've written the blurb and the title. So assume that that will happen. Uh, Lion O, which is also a good fake name, says, when did you, <laughs> when did you decide you were going to be awesome? Um, early. I think it was more that I didn't at any point decide that I was no longer going to be awesome. I think all kids think they're pretty awesome in, in one way or another, and I, I maintained that delusion a little bit longer than many other people. Uh, Paul says, in your opinion, has social media become more or less toxic over the past year, and why? Paul, I think toxic, oh, that's a hard word. It implies that there's something physical about it. I think, I think, hmm. I think it's hard to express a strong feeling in words, particularly in short words, and that there is a kind of an inflation going on in the level of hyperbole um, that people use to express the strength of their feelings. People are quicker to go to uh, violent imagery or swearing or personal attack um, for smaller in incentives. So they will say, I didn't like that sandwich, burn the sandwich shop down, for example, rather than that was an unpleasant sandwich, I'm going to be sad for the rest of the day, or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, I hope you know what I mean. That, that I feel like there's a, an inflation that's happened, that people feel like if their opposition is expressing themselves strongly, they must meet that strength to show that they feel things at the same level. Um, and in fact, maybe nobody is feeling... At, uh, that strongly, or maybe they're allowing themselves to feel that strongly because they're giving themselves the language that cultivates that strength of feeling. So I think it might be a bit of a two-way street. Uh, but whether it's become more or less toxic over the past year, I think over the past year it's become more intense, certainly. The consequences of that intensity, whether that's like toxic and to what it is toxic, I, I don't know. I think maybe it has made people angrier, in which case then, yes, maybe it is more toxic. But also I think social media in many ways is kind of the, the end point of human evolution so far in moving towards each other and being able to speak to other people. I'm hoping that this is a teething period rather than a sign that communication broadly across society between all levels of people is a bad idea. I'm hoping that it's not what it means. Uh, Brian asks, how does it feel to be an honorary Zaltzman or play one on the podcasts? Uh, it feels great. I love it. I was a listener of The Bugle for many years and it makes me extremely happy that I've been allowed to play in that particular family sand pit, um, that Zaltzman wants me to sidekick on his live shows, that I get to hang out with his lovely family, with Helen and his wife and children, and, um, yeah, that's one of the best things that's happened to me in the last couple of years. It's been very good for my career. Aside from that, it's brought a lot of you people to me. And, um, obviously, what I do is different from what Zaltzman does. But there is some Venn diagram, Venn diagram crossover. I think he selects for a really, um, not to sound like a wanker, but engaged and intelligent audience. And there's a certain proportion of those people who like what I do as well. So it's been been lovely uh, in a career sense and in a personal sense to have made uh, a cool new friend. 
Uh, Kevin asks, is everything going to be okay? I think, Kevin, that depends on whether you're thinking in a kind of a broad scale or a small scale. The answer is no, N not everything will be okay and everything will eventually not be okay, but drink a cup of concrete and harden up because this, this is the hand we're dealt. Um, you can make it as okay as you can and I hope that that's enough okay to make it worthwhile. Uh, VB, what did you wrestle with in 2018? <laughs> um, I suggest you listen to the last year's worth of podcasts. Um, mostly that is what I've wrestled with and then of course, you know, personal life. I think I've been a little lonelier this year to go back to Ant Pants' question at the beginning of this podcast. I've been a little lonelier this year than I would have liked but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing and uh, it hasn't defeated me. So... There you go. Adams uh, has asked, uh, what would you like to achieve uh, in 2019? And what I would like to do in 2019 is encourage people to have, as much as possible, um, generous thinking, humane thinking, individualistic thinking. I would like to encourage that without coming across as a smug twat. <laughs> Um, now, Reese has asked, what is the worst and best aspect of choosing a career which has a trajectory tied to notoriety? Um, the, the best and worst aspect of it is the same aspect, which is that it is thrilling and dangerous, um, that you are walking on a tightrope between saying interesting things that can destabilise the ways that people think about things and question your own thinking and make people reassess their positions or their um, hatreds or their loves or their assumptions um, without, without falling into being cruel, without falling into saying something that is beyond the pale in a way that's going to lead to some the kind of backlash that will make it impossible for me to do my job anymore. If I, if I cross a certain kind of line in a certain situation with a certain kind of person in the audience, um, and I hope I don't do that, then I am in trouble. And, you know, whether I'm famous enough to get in really bad trouble is a question, but I think that's the tightrope. I do want to say interesting things and I don't want to stick to a party line. I don't want to say things that I am certain are going to be applauded. That's not the kind of comedy that I like to do. I don't like to preach to a choir. I don't like... Um, I mean, I like approval, but I like the approval of having pulled off something difficult rather than the approval of, of, of pandering. That is not an attack on anybody who does comedy that is preaching to a particular choir because there's certainly people who what they do is representing a, a community that isn't often represented or speaking to people who don't often um, get uh, spoken to. There is a value in just being good at your job and in, in an unchallenging way. But the kind of comedy that I like to do is, is I don't want to say edgier because that makes me sound like a a twit, somebody who wants to offend people for the sake of offending people. I, I mean, there are people who have done things and said things that have changed my world, and as much as possible, 
I would like to be more like those people than not. <laughs> I think that's, um, that's all I have in the tank for questions um, that I have to answer. I hope this was fun for you. It was fun for me talking to, in this instance, an iron. Yesterday it was an ironing board and now I'm speaking to an iron. Um, it's a blue iron and it is half full of water and it's reminding me that I need to go and iron some clothes. So, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019. I hope you stick with me through it. It should be an interesting time. If you have any other comments or questions, please do contact me. It'll be a lot of fun, and I'm hoping there's going to be some really exciting guests this year and some fascinating conversations that make me feel pleasurably uncomfortable. So that's it from me. I'll see you next week. You're having tea with Alice.